The book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian Empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in 2 Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married, but they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land and they took all the abundance that he gave them and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel and he thinks about doing so, but instead he says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why? It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness. Hosea then spells out what all this means. He says the consequences for Israel's rebellion will be imminent defeat by other nations and exile. But there's hope for future restoration. One day Israel will once again repent and come back to worship their God. And Hosea says he will place over them a new messianic king from the line of David who will bring God's blessing. And so this opening section introduces all the main ideas of the book. Israel has rebelled and God's going to bring severe consequences, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And so in the remaining sections of the book, Hosea's poetry explores these themes in more depth. So there are two collections of his accusations and warnings for Israel. And then each of these is concluded by a very hopeful poem about God's mercy and hope for the future. So chapters 4 through 10, Hosea explores the causes and effects of Israel's unfaithfulness. He says numerous times that Israel lacks all knowledge or understanding of God. The Hebrew word to know, which is yada, it's more than just intellectual activity. It describes personal relational knowledge. It's the difference between just knowing about someone and then actually knowing that someone. And God wants Israel to know him like that in a relationship. He wants them to experience his love for them and become the kind of knowledge that transforms their hearts and lives so that they love him in return. And so this is why Hosea is constantly exposing the hypocrisy of Israel's worship. He constantly shows how they're breaking the Ten Commandments, how they're allowing grave injustice in their communities, and then they go to their sacred temples and they offer sacrifices to God like everything is just fine. But it's not fine. And not only because of their hypocrisy, but because they're worshiping all of these other gods too. He, he mentions many times their altars to Baal at the cities of Bethel and Gilgal. 
And not only have they given their allegiance to other gods, Hosea repeatedly accuses Israel for trusting in their political alliances with Egypt and Assyria. So instead of trusting God to protect them, they want to become like these nations and rely solely on military power. And God says it's all going to come crashing down on their heads because in not too long, Assyria will turn on them and come to ravage their lands. In this other section of warning, Hosea gives an ancient Israelite history lesson to show how this family has been unfaithful from the beginning. So he alludes to the patriarch Jacob's lying and treachery. Remember Genesis 27 and 28. He alludes to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Remember the book of Numbers. He alludes to their appointment of the corrupt king Saul who led the people into sin and disaster. Remember the stories in 1 Samuel. This is all Hosea's way of saying some things in this family family never change. So what hope does Hosea have? Well, we know from chapter 3 that God's going to do something to save and restore his people. And that's what these two concluding chapters explore. Chapter 11 is beautiful. The poem depicts God as a loving father who raised his son Israel and then shared everything with him. But the son grew up and rebelled and turned on the father, taking advantage of his generosity. And so in this poem, God is emotionally torn apart. One moment he's angry, and naturally he says he's going to bring severe consequences. But the next moment he's heartbroken. And then he says that he's moved by his mercy and compassion, and he's going to forgive the son that he loves. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart churns inside of me. All my compassion is aroused. And so while God did allow Israel to be conquered by Assyria, face the consequences, that's not God's final word. There's still hope. And that's what the last chapter is about. Hosea calls Israel to repent and turn back to their God, but he knows that it won't last because it never has before. And God says that one day he will heal their waywardness and love them freely. God goes on to describe this new healed Israel as a lush tree that will grow deep roots and broad branches and offer shade and fruit to all of the nations. It's an image of God's promise to Abraham, how Israel was to become a blessing to the nations. And God saying if that's ever going to happen, it's going to require an act of God's grace and healing power to repair the deep brokenness and sinful selfishness of the human heart so that God's people can receive his love and love him in return. This is what God promises to do. Now, after this poem concludes, we find the very last words of the book. They're like an appended note. They're likely from the author who collected Hosea's poetry and now wants to speak to you, the reader, for a second. And he says, who is wise and discerning to understand all of this? In other words, Hosea's poems. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. So the author wants you to know that Hosea's ancient poetry to northern Israel is not locked in the past. It reveals deep truths about God's character and purposes and human nature. And while God should and does bring his justice on human evil, his ultimate purpose, his heart, is to heal and to save his people. And that's what the book of Hosea is all about. Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing this morning?
I had the privilege of getting to be uh, up in the National Forest with the men up until last night. I just wanted to bring a message from them to you, especially to all of their wives. I really want you to know that they were all alive when I left. Very important. They've been having a great time up there. It's been a really neat, fun, fun time. And uh, Pastor Kerry went to Parents Weekend with his daughter Grace up at Simpson. So he'll be back next week. And luckily, I get to stand in and cover this whole, if you read Pastor Kerry's email, he talked about a whole millennium of time. And that's true. We're going to cover a thousand years of biblical time today. So fasten your seatbelts and let's get going. As we look back on what we've seen so far, we see that God is patient. We see that God's people continually wander away from him. And when we really think about it, we know that our hearts are prone to wander too. When we're really honest and we really look at ourselves, we know that's us. We're not that unlike Israel. Like that song, the second song that we sang, so beautifully said, it said, So to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Now fetter, that's an old term for chains, basically. Chains that, that they would use on criminals. And then the chorus goes on to say, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Not only is that Israel's story, that's our story, that we tend to wander, and we're going to keep coming back to that today. And we look and we see that in Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we think about all that we've covered so far in this series, there are a lot of people who've let their hearts wander. Adam and Eve, Cain, all the people that were with Noah and then even Noah, the descendants of Noah that went and formed the Tower of Babel, Abraham and Sarah, Joseph's brothers, and Saul, all had wandering hearts. And God continues to show his patience over and over and over again. Now, we've gotten through all of this, and at, at the time right before we get to what we're talking about today, because God is who he is, the kingdom is flourishing. It flourishes under David. It flourishes under Solomon, despite some issues they both have. And now we enter into this next part of biblical history. Let's look back at the timeline. The exile and return. Solomon takes foreign wives and allows their gods to clutter the land. His son continues the line of rulers, and the kingdom is then divided into the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. 
Prophets confront the people, but they persist in their idolatry. The northern kingdom falls to Assyria, and the southern kingdom is carried away into Babylonian captivity. When they are freed, they return to a nation and a kingdom far less glorious than before and are still unable to keep their promises. So after Solomon, his son Rehoboam decided that he was not going to be a good king, and all of the people in his courts and all of the people that should be telling him how to behave said, hey, you really don't want to do that. But he said, I'm going to do that anyway. And so then what happened is Jeroboam then rises up and challenges him, and Israel splits into two parts, the north and the south. And we're going to be covering a lot of time. In this thousand years, there are 39 kings of either Israel and Judah, the north or the south, and only four of them were good. Five of them did a little bit of good, but a lot of bad too. And the rest were all bad and did evil before the Lord. That's a lot of evil, isn't it? And there are no more judges. The judges, if you remember Carrie's diagram, the judges like brought people back to God. But we transition from judges to prophets. And so what happens is we see these kings doing the same things over and over again. They keep turning away from God. So as we're kind of wandering through this, the biggest chunk of our scripture is prophecy. So let's look at Deuteronomy. 18.18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth he will tell them everything I command him. So way back in Deuteronomy, God is setting forth this idea of the prophets. So prophecy and prophet, that word brings up all kinds of different thoughts and pictures in people's heads. A lot of the time you think fortune tellers, predictors, or you think wild and crazy things that are happening. But prophecy is even bigger than that. Generally speaking, a prophet is someone who had a radical encounter with God and becomes a spokesperson for God. So, now, we go back to Deuteronomy where Moses goes up and sees God and comes back down glowing. And so then the people are like, no, 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 don't make us look at God. Give us somebody to tell us what he's saying. That's what we need. We need somebody. And so there are different people along the way that are doing that, but in this section, the prophets come and do that. Now, in the call to worship this morning, we had a really beautiful picture of kind of the calling of Isaiah when he became a prophet, you know, and he got to really, in a vision, see God. He saw him high and exalted on the throne, his robe filling the temple. The six-winged seraphim were flying around. Isaiah realized his inadequacy, and 
an angel touched his lips with the burning coal to cleanse him, to take away his guilt, to atone for his sin. And then he was sent forth to share God's message. Wow, what a picture, right? But that's kind of what we were looking at with the prophets. They had this beautiful connection to God. Jeremiah, another prophet, had this back and forth experience with God where he talks about, God talks about knowing Jeremiah and setting him apart. Said that he set him apart before he was formed in the womb. In Jeremiah 1, 9 and 10, says, then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So normally when you think of prophecy, you think of this part over here, to uproot, to tear down, to destroy, to overthrow. But part of the story is to build and to plant. And when we look at these, there's judgment. That's part of the prophet's job is to talk about judgment, but there's also hope. And it's part of the prophet's job to talk about hope. It's not just the doom and gloom, but there's hope. Last week, Pastor Kerry talked about a cycle where the judges brought Israel back to God. And in this period, there's a new kind of a cycle. It's a lot different. Israel continues to break their covenant, and God's response now is that he rebukes them for it. The first part of God's new cycle, God rebukes Israel through the prophets. Zechariah 1, 2 through 4 says, the Lord was angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. Zephaniah 1.17 says, I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. So God rebukes. He's calling out their problems. He says, you have been violating God's covenant. There are a few messages that are across all of the prophets, and this is one of them. You are violating God's covenant. And usually there are three ways they look at this. Idolatry, making unholy alliances, and injustice or immorality. Remember, we looked at the story of Hosea, and it started off with Hosea and Gomer. Gomer committed adultery, but God told Hosea to pay off her debts and to commit to love and faithfulness again. And that picture was how God 
feels about how Israel makes him feel. But he's going to be faithful anyway. You know, just like that had to be really hard for Hosea. God feels that same way about Israel. And God feels that same way about us. He notices when we sin and separate ourselves from him. So another one of those themes that comes up a lot is repent. And you think, repent. And I'm, you, you hear that a lot in the Bible. You hear it told that for you to do. You hear it as people shouting it. Repent, repent. So what repent means is it literally means to change direction. It's kind of a military style about face. You're going this way, you need to turn around, go this way. But it kind of means a little bit more when God's saying it. It means he wants you to change your mind and your heart because of God's love for you. In the video, the last chapter of Hosea was a call to repentance. That chapter starts off, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Repent. Zacharias, Zechariah also focuses on this. He says, Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen and pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Repent. Now, repent is a theme that gets carried through the New Testament too. Repent is something that we need to see because it impacts us. We look at Israel, and Israel gets called to repent, but we're getting called to repent at the same time. Now, in marriage counseling, I deal with couples with problems a lot. And it's really common for one person and sometimes both people, to just refuse to repent. They go into counseling and they're like, I'm just here so you can tell them they're wrong. Right? And the problem is, is as long as this is going on, there's never going to be a restored marriage. It's just not going to happen. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try as their counselor, I'm not going to make any progress. And there are really three things I want to point out that get in the way and make it difficult to repent. The first one is selfishness. It's really easy to focus on yourself and not focus on someone else. And like in this marriage example, to just want what you want and not really care as much as you need to about what your spouse wants or what's good for the marriage. There's also pridefulness not being willing to be wrong or look at other possibilities other than what you think. And there's entitlement. 
They think they're right, and they don't need to change. Just like that kind of locks up a marriage and makes it not able to grow, it locks up all kinds of relationships with each other, and it freezes up our relationship with God. When we're not willing to look at ourselves and repent, then we're not able to connect back with God. Just like Israel really struggled with that. It's something that we have to deal with in our lives too. The third message that's really common in the prophets is judgment. There are consequences for breaking the covenant and for not repenting. So basically, God tells us what we're doing wrong, calls us to repent, but then has to say, yes, there are consequences for when we don't listen. Like a good father, God follows through with discipline. He not only gives his law, but he enforces it. There are consequences. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. My kids can be the epitome of give them an inch and they take a mile. I'm sure some of you can relate. Now, God brings other nations to discipline his people. He sends them into exile. Prophets announce consequences and consequences happen. Habakkuk asked God a question about this. He said, why? Do you allow all this injustice in Judah? Why are you allowing this for your people? And God replies that he's going to punish those people that are oppressing, but the wickedness has to be judged. The wickedness has to be judged. I think maybe the prophet's declaration of this is kind of like herding cats. Maybe even herding cats through a room full of rocking chairs. It's not going to be easy to get them where you want them to go. Kind of like the song said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to wander. And the prophets were trying to kind of corral Israel in the right direction, and it wasn't working so good. And we kind of need to do that too. And when I was thinking about this, I was remembering when my kids were little. My wife and I adopted four kids from Ethiopia, and when we got them, they were one, two, three, and six. And we realized that my wife was home with them all the time. So, I would take them shopping with me. And I remember taking them to Sam's Club. The highlight of taking them to Sam's Club is we would walk in and the greeter knew them, loved them, 
drew little circles on things and handed them to them and smiley faces and was really nice. And that was great. And then we went in. Now, I would get one of those carts that had places for two of them, but I had four of them. So I was outnumbered, couldn't corral them. And I realized that if I spent too much time paying attention to what I needed to get and didn't discipline them and keep them in line, things got out of hand really fast. Not only would I find random things in the cart, I would be going, wait, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, where are they? Oh, go get him. He's over there. Pull him back. Hold his hand. Hold the other hand. How do I get stuff? It was crazy. But if I started off and I said, hey, we're going in here and this is what I expect. And then as soon as they did something, then I'd be like, no, 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 come back over here. We're not doing that. And if I paid attention to them and stayed on top of it, life was a lot better. And I realized I'm sure God feels that way with me. He looks down at me he's like, going, oh, no, get back over here. No, not that. When are you going to pray? Why are you reading that? You haven't read your Bible yet. Wait. But he's that way with me because my heart is prone to wander. And I need to listen to this and hear his rebuke and deal with it before I get to that consequences part. Nobody wants that consequences part, right? So for that, we have to do a few things. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us what we need to work on. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of things we need to change. So we need to take some time to ask the Holy Spirit how to do that. We need to make sure we deal with our own sin. When we realize we're doing something wrong, we need to deal with it, not justify it. It's so easy in our heads to be like, well... Oh, that's not that bad. Or that's not really bad as so-and-so. They're way worse. But that's not what we need to do. We need to deal with our sin and follow through with it. So back to this big cycle. God rebukes, and then God remembers. God remembers. Oh, I love this part. This is the good part. God always remembers his promises to the people, even when they're being bad. Even when they're being bad, God remembers. The prophets keep coming back to this over and over and over again. Now, God remembers us. My question is, do we remember him? He remembers us all along the way. So then I ask you, what disciplines do you have in your life to make sure that you remember him every day? Now, I don't recommend you start off with reading a whole book of the Bible every morning. That's just going to set yourself up to failure. But work something into your life to get you in a regular pattern of connecting with God. And then we're being like him. He remembers, and we need to remember. I know that when my disciplines are off, 
I'm off. I remember a long time ago, my lovely wife called me out on this. Sunday mornings were rough. I was short, was trying to get to church. And I realized I had been like, well, I'm going to church. Why should I do my regular morning kind of routine with God? My wife was like, why would you not do that? You need it more. You know our kids. I was like, yeah, I do know our kids, and I do need it more. And she called me out, and I was able to be like, yeah, I need to not give up that discipline just because it's Sunday. And so then the third part of this cycle is God restores. God restores. So there's the rebuke, but then he remembers, and then he restores. This is the beautiful part of things. In Hosea 14, 4 and 5, it says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Oh, how beautiful is that? And in Micah, it says, and Okay, it says, who is a God like you? Who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. When you look at what God is doing, and you think about his restoration, that is what Israel was always longing for. They were always holding out for it. Now, so many times they fell short of doing what they needed to do to get there. But we too need that restoration with God. And coming up, we're going to talk a lot more about that. God has a better plan than following the law. And that's coming. But we're not there yet. Instead, we look at this cycle and I think, what better place to look at this cycle than Nineveh? Now, if you've been around the church a long time, you've heard stories about Nineveh, and they usually start with Jonah. And Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh, and God makes sure that he goes to Nineveh, swallows him up with a big fish, spits him out on the land to go to Nineveh, right? So, when we're looking at that, says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it, and Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. 
When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose to his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animal, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with his compassion from his fierce anger. And we will not perish. So you've got this beautiful picture of the rebuke. And Nineveh says, oh, yeah, let's not do that. Let's repent. And they repent. And that is beautiful. But then a hundred years later, we come back to Nineveh. And Nahum, another prophet, goes to Nineveh and he says, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His ways is the whirlwind and the storm, the cloud and the dust of his feet. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. What happened is, for a generation, Nineveh repented and turned to God. A hundred years later, that next generation turned back to worshiping idols. So when you think about this big cycle, and you think about those initial questions Hey, you're breaking God's covenant. Repent. Consequences are coming. God's rebuke. It really brings into focus this tension of justice and mercy. When you think about justice and mercy, at first glance, those like seem like opposites, right? They seem like, well, you can have one or you can have the other. And like in our court systems, Justice and mercy are opposites. And like the way to find mercy would be a governor to pardon someone, and then there's no justice. There's only mercy. But that's not the way it is with God. God disciplines because he is just, and he shows compassion and forgiveness because he is merciful. And because he is both, he's not like that parent who threatens discipline, and never disciplines. That's not what he does. Instead, he disciplines. He disciplines his children because he loves his children. Both are in his character. And it's really important to remember that God's discipline is not about who we are. God's discipline is about who God is. God's discipline is because he loves us, because he is a just God, and because he is a merciful God. We tend to get that backwards. We tend to make it about us. But it's about who God is. And when we look at it that way, it makes sense. 
one of the big things, one of the big disciplines that ended up happening, a big chunk of this is the exile. Now, if you think for a minute about the safety and stability of being home, home, if it's the way it's supposed to be, is a nice, comfortable, safe place. It has order. You know what to expect. You get in a routine and a cycle, and it just feels good. Now, think about when you're going on vacation. You, you don't have as many things with you. You're in a strange place. The bed's not your bed. Now, you might be there to connect and have fun with people that you really care about, but there is a big change when you're on vacation. And you realize that when you come back home, and it just feels good to be home. But now imagine being displaced. I think about when Angela had the leak at her house, and they had to move out with her three kids and their dog, and they lived in a camping trailer for weeks on weeks on weeks on end. And they moved from place to place, and wow, talk about feeling displaced. And when you think about it, that's more what the exile was like. Now, when you think about the Israelites being in exile, you think, okay, there are really two kinds of things they can do about it. They can revolt against those people that are taking them away and try to get even and try to get away. Or they can have this cavalier attitude of, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's just kind of assimilate. Let's fit in, you know? They have gods, let's worship their gods. Let's just do what we need to do. Now, Jeremiah is talking to him, and he tells him what to do, and he describes it very differently. He says, this is what the Lord, God, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Definitely not options one or two, right? There's definitely a third option. Now, there are some kind of limits to that option. But we get to see Daniel and some of his buddies carry this out in the book of Daniel. Quickly, the Babylonian leaders see the value of some of the wise leadership in Israel. And so Daniel and a lot of his friends are... They're prophets, and they're kind of worked into the leadership there. They're given duties, given expectations. And they're also given the king's food. But Daniel says, hey, wait. We've been eating what we're eating. This rich food is not good for us. We really don't want to do that. Give me, let's do a little experiment. How about we eat my food, and if it makes us look frail and pale and not good, then we'll eat the king's food. And they were like, well, okay. 
and they ended up looking better than everyone eating the king's food. And so they, there was not this assimilation. There wasn't this, I'm going to go do what they're doing. But there was, we're going to serve and bless this country that we're living in. And they did draw even bigger lines. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't going to bow down and ended up getting thrown into the fiery furnace, and God saved them out of the fiery furnace. Like, God was like, you don't give in on only worshiping me. And when they only worshiped him, they were blessed. And the people around them were blessed. It was a very successful place. Now, when we're looking at this, we also need to remember that exile is a big theme all through the Bible. Like, in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned and were exiled from the garden. Then we've got this picture of exile. But then the New Testament talks a lot about this picture of exile as we're an exiled people waiting to get to heaven. So then this, this is how you deal with being in exile, then directly gets taught to us as this is how you, who are in exile, living on a sinful earth right now, need to take an approach to this. Don't just fight it tooth and nail. And don't assimilate and give in and become like them. But live there. Pray for them. Make it prosper. That's what God calls us to do here, just like he called Daniel and all his buddies and all the exiles to do it there. Now remember, what are those three things that God always does? So we know that there's a return from the exile. They're not in exile forever. And it's actually the two different kings of Babylon that are sending them back. You know, this gets covered in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, in our Bible, it's two different books. In older times, it was one book altogether because the two of them tell one story. So you have to think of them, smush them together, and they tell one story. But it starts off with, Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple, Ezra rebuilds the community, and Nehemiah, he's known for rebuilding Jerusalem's wall. Now, each of these really should be a good thing, but each of these people run into problems, and some of it's because they, they don't do what they're supposed to do, right? Um, they don't include all the people around Jerusalem, but all the prophecy says, hey, it needs to include everybody. Right? They come up with extra laws that God doesn't tell them to. But what we see here is each of them has an issue. And they all kind of work to try to overcome it. They even do this really big push for revival and spiritual renewal there. They go back to reading the Torah. And they make promises to God. But then, they don't follow them. They don't keep them. They return again and stop fulfilling the covenant. 
So there's this much-awaited return to Jerusalem, and they're all excited about it, and they're like, wow, God's going to show back up here. We're going to have it again the way we wanted it. And that's not what they get. And what's going on is it really seems to be that Israel, despite all of these restarts, they really seem to need a new heart. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. They need a heart with God's law. Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. Now, one of the things that I've, you might have noticed is that I, I'm pairing scriptures together from different places a lot in a theme. And that's just to kind of reiterate that all this section of Scripture has the same themes. They have the same things that they're telling us. They're not all little individual stories without this big, broader picture that connects them all together. So this idea of imagery of a new heart really kind of fits in with this whole look at repent earlier, right? This repent, turn away, change. Well, they start it and they stop it and they start it and they stop it and they start it and they stop it and they start it and they stop it. In all these different places, all around. And this really kind of highlights the futility of the law as a pathway to God. Yes, Israel is supposed to fulfill the law. But over and over and over and over and over again, the law is not enough to get them to stick to it. It doesn't change their heart. And just like we look at that, we really can't escape ourselves. We need a new heart. A heart that will show transformation. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Beautiful picture of what it would mean to have a new heart. A beautiful picture of what we should do. The problem is, is that even all the way up to Malachi, we want the story to go a step further than it ever goes. We want this idea. We want this idea that we are going to be able to change our hearts 
And we're looking at that back to the song. As our worship team is going to come back up, they're going to sing that song again for us. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Telling God that we want his goodness to chain us to him. That's where we want to be. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Take my heart and seal it. We need a heart change. Israel needed a heart change. And the end of the Old Testament leaves us longing for a heart change. We're like, oh Lord, we want you. We keep falling short. Now this is a hard place to end the sermon, isn't it? But that's because that's how the Old Testament ends. It's a hard place and it leaves us longing. Now, there's good news coming. Later on, we're going to hear John the Baptist come, and his proclamation is, repent! Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But it doesn't fall on deaf ears. So now we're about to come to a turning point. We covered a lot of things that we need to work on in our hearts. But next week, we're going to get to the best answer that God could ever provide. So until then, let's just keep praying. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.